Romans chapter 12 tonight. And if you think we have slowed down in Romans up to this point, you ain't seen nothing yet. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There have been books that have changed the course of history because they were written with such power at specific times. The minds of men and women got a hold of these ideas, and it changed the way people have thought, either for good or bad. Think of the influence that Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species has had on society at large. It's a flawed manuscript. It was then, it is now, but nonetheless, it has absolutely influenced the world. Books such as Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler changed the course of Europe after it was written. And thousands upon thousands, literally millions of lives, were killed a lot because of the influence that book had on many Europeans, especially those in Germany. And then we come to the book of Romans, a book that has changed people for the good. In fact, most of the great revivals of the past The great moves of God in the past, the Reformations, have traced their roots directly to the book of Romans. At the beginning of this study, I mentioned that Martin Luther was changed by the book of Romans. Martin Luther said of this book, it is the chief part of the New Testament. The book of Romans is the purest of Gospels. In fact, it so changed his life that he said every Christian should know it word for word by heart. But also he should occupy himself with it every single day. Do you think it influenced that guy? Absolutely. Now why? Because he was, in 1505, ordained as an Augustinian monk. And he was so pious in trying to produce a righteousness by being this celibate, recluse monk in the Catholic religion. In fact, he was so righteous, he thought, he said, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it is I. <laughs> but he was tormented because he read the book of Romans and he found a phrase in it that seemed foreign to him. The righteousness of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. The righteousness of God. 
And he started comparing that concept of the righteousness that comes from God with his own righteousness that he had been trying to produce all of these years with great agony. He saw that he had fallen short. He trusted in the righteousness of God, and that began the Reformation by discovering the truths of this book. Not only Luther, but John Wesley happened to get a hold of Martin Luther's commentary to the book of Romans and read the introduction. And in just reading the introduction, Martin Luther's own spiritual journey, he said, My heart was strangely warmed. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, and the great enlightenment of the 18th century was spawned by him reading the book of Romans and discovering its truths. Tyndale touched Europe, England, after reading the book of Romans. No wonder Frederick Godet once wrote, O St. Paul, had thy one work been to compose the epistle of Romans, that alone should have rendered thee dear to every sound reason. Now, we began by just reading parts of chapter 12. We're not going to get through all that we read, those first few verses. Because what I want to do now, since we're at a, at a junction in the book of Romans, is to lift you out of the trees and get you to look at the whole forest again. Because in chapter 12, we come to the fourth part of the book of Romans. We've divided it up in an outline. And we keep reminding you of that outline. Hopefully it'll be just committed to memory at this point. The first part of the book of Romans is the wrath of God. That's chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, after all of the introduction, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul introduces the wrath of God. Most of us didn't like that section. It was hard. It was heavy. It was like a looming cloud over us. But Paul paints a black picture of the world before he speaks of the second division, the grace of God. What Paul does in that first few chapters, it says, is that the righteousness of God is needed. The righteousness that comes from God is needed because of God's wrath that is poised against man's unrighteous behavior. Man is unrighteous by nature and by choice. God is wrathful against man's unrighteousness. But God just doesn't get mad for no reason. He provides a solution giving us his righteousness. What Paul does in the first few chapters is, is he divides up humanity into three classes. You might divide them differently, but he divides them up in these three classes. Pagans, number one. Number two, moralists, people who say, well, I'm a moral person. I, I keep a set of codes, laws, be Jewish or Gentile. There's a moralist, and that's the person who says, I do good things in order that God will accept me. The third class that Paul describes in the first three chapters, up to verse 20 of chapter 3, is the religionist, the strict, self-righteous, self-confident Jew who's trying to keep all of the law of Moses so that he can say, I have done all that God requires. I've kept God's law. And so Paul takes all of them and says, you know what? There's no difference if you're religious, if you're moral, or if you're a garden-variety pagan. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how high you aim and no matter how good we do, all of us, every one of us, falls somewhere short of the standard. That's why we need the righteousness of God. 
With that, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul speaks about the grace of God. That's the second division. He says, For a righteousness from God is revealed from heaven. That's where the great news begins. The grace of God that is poured out because of the wrath of God that was spoken about previously. How does God do it? This section tells us. God wants to save people. God wants to give people a righteousness. How does he do it? What's the word? Justification. That's how he does it. God justifies bad people, ungodly people, wicked people. He declares them righteous. Doesn't mean they are by their own virtue, but he declares them righteous if they place their faith in Christ. The finished work of Jesus, our faith in Christ, is enough for God to look at a person and say, I will clear the account books. You are justified. You are acquitted because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. In that sec- section, the second section, some key words emerge. Justification is one. Propitiation is another. Remember that word? The atoning sacrifice or the propitiation translated the mercy seat. Sanctification arises during that section. Glorification arises in that section. Real briefly, chapter 4 Paul's main theme is, look at Abraham. That guy was justified by faith before any law of Moses was given. He lived before Moses. He was justified by faith. He believed God. God accounted it to him as righteousness. Chapter 5, he speaks of justification and the results. We've been justified by faith. The result is we have peace with God. Second thing we have is access to God anytime, day or night. Third thing we have is the hope of heaven, glory. The fourth thing we have is that we have meaning in the midst of life's trials. All of that in chapter 5. And then the end of chapter 5, Jesus is compared with Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam. Then we come to chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins the famous questioning. What shall we say then? And what about this? And Paul answers his own questions. A series of questions meant to ask, well, how does all this relate to me personally? Then we come to chapter 7, the relationship of the law of Moses to the believer. Then chapter 8, the life-giving Holy Spirit that is a part of God giving us salvation. He dwells within us. He yearns within us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can conquer the life of sin that we have known. Then, we just concluded last week with the third section of the book of Romans, the plan of God. So we have the wrath of God, we have the will of God, and in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the plan of God. And and Paul, it would seem in these chapters, um, doesn't make a good transition. That's what it seems like, because he's talking about all this wrath and all this grace and justification and the Holy Spirit. Then he starts talking about Jews and God's covenant promises. And you go, why is he doing that? Simply because in Rome, the recipients of this letter, there was an ethnic mix. There were Gentiles and Jews, and they had a lot of questions. First question is, okay, if Jesus is the promised Messiah, how come more Jews in Israel don't believe in him? And how do you square their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah with God fulfilling his eternal covenant promises with Abraham and David, etc.? 
And if God does fulfill his promises with these patriarchs, where does that leave the rest of the Gentiles? So all of that plan of God through the ages was discussed in these chapters. And now chapter 12, the will of God. And Paul does what is so classic in Paul's writings. It's, It's a typical Paul deal. To begin with doctrine and then end with duty based upon that doctrine. He gives the creed first, chapters 1 through 11. Then he gives the conduct that ought to match that creed. And that begins in chapter 12 all the way to chapter 15, right around the middle of chapter 15. And then there's some closing remarks at the end of 15 and all the way into chapter 16. There's two choices that Paul leaves us with in chapter 12. Based upon all that God has done with his wisdom and his love and his mercy to us, we have two choices. Either we will be conformed to the pattern of an ungodly world, or we will be transformed. God will change the way we think and thus the way we live, and we will know his will. We can live in one of those two arenas the will of God and know what it is by a couple of things, or we can live conformed to this world, and those are the two options he leaves. Of course, he begs, he entreats, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so we come now to the will of God. I got to believe, just based on experience, personal and as a pastor, that one of the chief concerns in every true believer, once they start to grow, is knowing the will of God. I I, got to believe that's one of the most asked questions. How do I know the will of God? How do I know my life is lived conforming to what God wants? How can I be sure of that? We have a hang-up as Christians. The hang-up is that we, we know God's eternal will, and we're not worried about that. We've trusted in Christ, so we know that his eternal will will be wrought. We're going to go to heaven. What we're worried about is his temporal will, right? I'm not worried about heaven. I know I'm going to go to heaven. I trust Christ. But we get all hung up on what about till I get there? How can I make sure everything's going to be okay till I get there? But think of it logically. Paul will tonight. Talks about the being logical and using your mind. If God can get you to heaven, I think he can get you at the right job, marrying the right person, moving to the right place, the right occupation, don't you? I mean, heaven is the big enchilada. And if he can make sure that his will transpires in your life with that, The other stuff is easy goings. That temporal will of God, if you trust him, just like you trust him for salvation, God is able to get you there. However, many Christians find the pursuit of the will of God kind of a mystical experience. It's very uncertain and very clouded. Um, Some try, you've heard of this, the open and point method. You just go, Hmm, and Judas went out and hung himself. Oh, let's see. Uh, 
you can see how that could be dangerous. Not that God cannot speak to you spontaneously by a word from the Bible at times. He can. But some of us mystify it too much. Others feel, I'll just wait. It's got to be silent. Shh, I want to hear God speaking. And they'll wait. And You know, if you wait long enough, you're going to hear all sorts of things eventually. Again, not saying God cannot speak his will in that way. But we mystify it so much. And Paul simplifies it here. Paul is going to speak about the will of God. He's going to begin generally. How do you generally know the will of God? And then he'll get very specific. In view of all that God has revealed in the first 11 chapters, he talks now about the will of God. I heard about a farmer. I guess he was having a midlife crisis. He was middle-aged. He was out on the farm. He always wanted to be an evangelist. So one day he's out plowing, decides to sit under a tree for a break, and he looks up into the sky, and the afternoon clouds start coming together, and they form what looks like to him two letters, P and C. And he gets so excited. He gets up, makes arrangement to sell his farm, get rid of all of his equipment, and go out and preach Christ. He thought, this is the will of God, PC, preach Christ. The problem is, the guy was a horrible preacher. And everybody knew it who heard him. And after one of the meetings, somebody came up to him, a neighbor who loved him, and whispered in his ear, are you sure God wasn't just saying, plant corn? Notice how Paul begins. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first two verses is the will of God generally. Then there are other verses after that. Let me just give you a, a brief preview of what it looks like. After those first two verses, generally, he then specifically says, the will of God in relation to your own gifts in the body of Christ. The will of God in relation to your getting along with people in the body of Christ. Um, the will of God in relation to treating your enemies. The will of God, chapter 13, in relation to the state government. The will of God in relation to weaker Christians that are among you, chapter 14 and part of chapter 15. That's the specifics. But first of all, tonight, if by God's grace we get through it, we're going to do two verses. The will of God generally. You know, I'll tell you why. I found that, that some of the smallest oysters in Scripture yield the richest pearls. And these first two verses do exactly that. Verse 1 is the presentation of our body. Verse 2, the transformation of our mind. The end of verse 2 is the comprehension of God's will. Notice, first of all, his strong appeal. He says, I beseech you. That means I beg you. I beg you. It's not I demand, but it is I beg. It's a strong entreaty. The Greek word parakaleo. Do you remember the word paraclete? That's a name for the Holy Spirit. Parakletos is a name for the comforter or the helper of the Holy Spirit. That's the word he uses. I parakaleo. I beseech you. I, as as a counselor, as a human counselor, call alongside to help you, is the idea. I'm urging you. I want to help you. 
present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. What Paul is saying in urgent terms is that we ought to live what we know. I beg you, live what you know. There's a book that I have uh, on my bookshelf. You may have it. You may have read it. I read it as soon as it came out in the 70s. It was by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. It's a classic, Knowing God. And the beginning of his book, he has an illustration of people who sit on a balcony all day long versus people who are on the road walking. And he said, I meet two types of people, balconiers, they sit on the balcony overlooking the road, and then I meet travelers, they're on the road. Now the balconiers can see the road, they hear the stories of the road, they talk to people who walk on the road, they hear the, the problems, the turns, the bumps, there's only one problem, they don't walk it. All they do is theorize about walking. They made a few observations, but they don't walk themselves. And so there's a big difference between those who talk about walking and those who are on the road walking. He talks about that in terms of Bible study and theology, that every time we study the Bible, we ought to live what we know. At least ask God by your strength, O Lord, help me to live this. Because otherwise we harden our hearts. If we just theorize every Bible study we hear, we become hardened. If we're not walking but we're just on the balcony, pretty soon what happens is we start becoming sermon connoisseurs. I'll give that guy a, between one and ten, maybe a six, maybe a seven. You know, good beat, easy to dance to. I like that. That'll work. We start evaluating preaching. We start criticizing those who walk on the road. We do everything short of walking. And that's Paul's concern. He spent 11 chapters in heavy theology, the wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God. I beg you, in view of God's mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. You know, folks, think about it practically. If we come to Bible study, but we decide, I just want to sit around and listen to it, but I'm not going to apply it, you know, we might as well stay home and watch TV. It's not doing us any good. And if we sit and argue about predestination, we argue about fine points of theology while a world is out there that doesn't know Christ. Going into eternity without Christ, it's flawed. So that's his strong appeal. I beseech you. I beg you. Notice his audience, and I'm taking it slowly. Brethren, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. I'll tell you why I stopped there. Because I think this word is highly deliberate. He's speaking to Christian brethren. You know why? Because he has just belabored the point that there are divisions. There are Jews. There are Gentiles. There is the church. God has a plan for the Jewish nation. You Gentiles are a wild olive branch, not like the natural olive branch. This was God's original choice, but by grace and mercy he brought you in. So they were left in chapter 11 sort of feeling like, okay, there's these major distinctions between the chosen of God and those who just happen to get in by his grace. So now he erases all the barriers, all of the borders, all of the distinctions, and just addresses brethren, Jews, Gentiles. Anyone who believes in Christ is a brother. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. 
I used to view Christians very skeptically. Um, I remember when I gave my life to Jesus, I was contemplating the decision uh, on a summer afternoon in 1973, and uh, boy, Jesus attracted me. I wasn't too sure about his followers. I wanted a relationship with Christ, but I wasn't too excited about having a relationship with his kids because some of them I knew and I liked, and a lot of them, frankly, I thought were obnoxious. And I thought, uh, do I have to? And then when I became converted and God revealed my wicked heart and my nerdiness and how gracious God was to erase barriers, borders, and place us all as one family, irrespective of background, ethnicity, culture, part of the world, one international family as the body of Christ. It became pretty exciting. In fact, one of the most exciting experiences I have is when I travel overseas and I go to different cultures. It might be Africa, the Philippines, or India, or England, or Scotland, and I meet with Christians. Often I don't speak their language. I I need an interpreter. But there is a bond, a bond that can only come by being a brother or a sister in Christ. Some of you have had that experience. You've traveled, and you don't know the language, but you catch a word like, Hallelujah! You go, I know what that means. By the way, that's universal. Every language you can say that. And there's an embrace and a bond. And the distinctions melt away. So, his strong appeal, I beg you, his audience, brethren. The basis for his appeal is next. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. You remember the rule of therefores? Whenever there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. It's a good rule. It will help you in your Bible study. Every time you find one, stop and ask, why is the therefore therefore? You don't begin sentences with therefore. Therefore, good morning. You don't do that. (laughs) Therefore refers back to an antecedent, something that came before it. Therefore, because for 11 chapters, we have rehearsed the mercies of God. Present yourselves to God. It's based upon the mercy of God. Uh, I decided to look through the previous chapters and find out what those mercies were. Basically, it's, it's God dealing with people who don't deserve to be dealt with this way because of what Jesus did for them on the cross. All of those are mercies. Chapter 5, verse 1, we're justified freely by faith. Chapter 5, verse 2, we have access to God. Same verse, we have the hope of heaven. The verse after that in chapter 5, we get shaped through trials. Chapter 7, he speaks about overflowing grace to the undeserving. Chapter 8, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, praying when we need prayer, helping us conquer sin. Chapter 9 through 11, God's promises because of the mercy he's showing to the Jews. And look at the end of chapter 11. He spoke about mercy. That's what we closed with last week. God's mercy to the Gentiles. So, because of all that God has done for you, he cleans you up, he grows you up, therefore, live like it. That's what he's saying. Live like it. Live like you're justified. Live like you're forgiven. Live like you're on your way to heaven. 
Present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. This, then, is what I call the graduation chapter of the book of Romans. You know, whenever you graduate, it's basically what they're telling you when you graduate is, okay, you made it through school. We applaud you. Good for you. Here's your diploma. Use your knowledge. That's why this is the graduation chapter. All the knowledge that we've uncovered in the wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, put it in your life. Make it the will of God in your own personal experience. By the way, I don't believe there's any greater incentive to godly, holy living than contemplating the mercies of God. That's the greatest incentive to godly living. Some people feel if you teach mercy and teach grace, you're going to develop a whole group of people that won't obey God's law. Nonsense. The greatest incentive is you go, oh, God, I'm so undeserving. You've been so good. I want to please you. I want to serve you. I want to surrender myself to you. That's the greatest incentive. It's not guilt, severity, fear of punishment. Remember Paul back in Romans 2. It's the kindness of God, the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. I look back on my life and I have to say God's been so merciful to me. I was aimless. Man, I I had no clue about the purpose and meaning of life. I just had a big question mark I walked around with every day of my life until 1973, and I watched Billy Graham on that television show, and I gave my life to Christ. He set me on the path on the road to heaven. That's mercy. I was alone. 1981. It was 1980, actually. I got a phone call from my wife's father. She wasn't my wife at the time. He called me and and said, Hey, my daughter has feelings for you. And I know you dated her once and you're not dating her, but you know, you don't communicate to her very well. You owe her a phone call. If it's over, it's over. If it's not, it's not. But but do something about it. And it was that phone call that caused the wheels to start turning again, and it was God's mercy to provide a mate. Because I was dense. It took a phone call from her father to use it to open my eyes. I was confused. I wanted to do the will of God. I didn't know what it was. God sent me to New Mexico. Start a Bible study. God has been merciful. The heart of his appeal is next, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Now this word present is a technical phrase. He's borrowing the terminology of the ancient Levites who would present an animal at the altar to God. They would present it. They'd put it on the altar. And as they put it on the altar, they would then be burned, totally consumed by fire. Present your lives. Let your lives be totally consumed with doing the will of God. Make that your aim. Present your body that way. That's what the word means. Remember when Abraham and Isaac walked up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice whom? Isaac. He was, in effect, a living sacrifice. You know, we always talk about the great faith of Abraham. and Believe me, he had faith to believe that God was somehow going to rescue his son from death. But he went up there ready to kill his son. 
thinking this is what God wants. It wasn't the will of God. It was a test. But what about the faith of Isaac? Nobody talks about that. Well, uh, Father, we've got the, the fire and we got the... Where's the lamb for the offering? Get up on the altar, buddy. <laughs> what? But he did. He went all the way through to the raising of the knife before the angel stopped Dad. Now that was faith. He laid up there the living sacrifice. Now we're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. The priests, and here's the difference, brought a dead sacrifice. They killed the lamb. They killed the bullock. It was dead. They presented it on the altar. Living sacrifices are harder because we have a tendency to squirm off the altar. Right? We give ourselves to God. Here I am, Lord. By the way, the word in Greek is present once for all your life as a sacrifice totally consumed to do the will of God. Once for all. You know, so often we say, Lord, I give you my life. And then, oh, just kidding. I'll take it back right now. There's a few things I want to do. When I get ready, I'll give it back. Now imagine a priest doing that in the Old Testament. Imagine him putting a sacrifice on the altar, and he goes, oh, no, I'm going to take it back. Well, by that time, the fire is burning. He's going to be a barbecued beef if he tries to take it off the altar. It's once and for all. And yet we go, Lord, I do. I want to serve you. My life is yours. But i tell you what. Would you just tell me first what you have in mind? Then I'll know if I really want to yield myself to you. You know why we say that? You know why we're hesitant sometimes in the will of God? Because we don't know him well enough yet. When you know your father well enough, and you know that God has the highest in store for you, it's, Lord, take it all. I surrender all. I want to focus on the word bodies for just a minute. Present your bodies to God. I read this this afternoon, and I thought, a Greek reading this passage would be shocked at what Paul said. Because to the Greeks, the body was sort of the irrelevant part of you. It was an encumbrance. It was the prison of the soul. It imprisoned your soul. And the Greeks, many of them longed to be at a place where they were released from the body and the soul was unencumbered. So he's, present your bodies. In fact, the Greeks had a saying, soma. Sima esteen. The body is a tomb. This irrelevant prison. By the way, I find some Christians that have the same strange view of the body as the ancient Greeks. Now, the body doesn't matter. Give your heart to God. Just your heart. Notice it says, give your body to God. He's concerned about you presenting your body. Why? Because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which means your body is the base of operations for God to do His will. If God's going to do His will through your life, it's not just this mystical heart that we talk about. It's your body. It's very practical. It's through hands and feet and mouths and eyes. It's through your body. Turn back. I'll show you the difference. Turn back to chapter 3 for just a moment. Verse 13. Verse 10 talks about it is written. Verse 13. There 
throat, this is the unbelieving world, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the point. Just as human depravity is revealed through human bodies, human spirituality is revealed through human bodies too. So you take what we just read and kind of turn it around, and we're to have feet that walk in the ways of God, hands that reach out in the name of God, mouths that speak and spread the gospel of God. Not these things that are in chapter 3. In the Old Testament, Aaron the priest and the other priests went through this weird ritual, but it was very significant. The ritual was they would take blood and they would take and dab it upon their thumb of their right hand, their right ear, and the big toe of their right foot. That was part of the act of consecration as a priest, but it was significant. My hands are consecrated to God, cleansed and consecrated to reach out for Him, to do His will, to work His works. My feet are consecrated to walk in the ways of God. My ears are dedicated to God to hear His voice. Beautiful, beautiful symbolism. Now, in the Scripture, there are many examples of people who have done this. They've yielded themselves to God, and their parts of their body have been tremendous instruments. Moses, he couldn't speak, but he yielded himself to God. He became an instrument to stand before Pharaoh and speak God's word, to bring the law spoken to the nation of Israel. David's sling in his hand defeated not only lions and bears with the sheep, but Goliath, the Philistine enemy of Israel. The feet of Paul the Apostle walked through the Roman Empire with Luke and others to bring the gospel. So a body presented to God becomes a base of operation for God to do His will. But then think of some of the examples in the Scripture where the body was not devoted to God. His will wasn't accomplished. Cain killed Abel. David's eyes at one point looked upon Bathsheba. His hands killed. His mouth gave the order to kill. He deceived. It wasn't used for righteousness. So, present your bodies. God will do his will through your bodies. Now, this has got to be one of the most exciting propositions to any Christian. Here's the proposition. God wants to do his will on earth through you. God has a plan to do his will on earth through you. Now, I know that might sound confusing, that God would stop to use human beings to do his will. But he does. He chooses us. Granted, if he used angels rather than humans, I think the job would get done a lot quicker and be a lot better. In fact, the Bible alludes to the fact that these angels sort of wonder at this whole event of God using people. But also keep in mind that God is attracted to weakness. God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the mighty. So God has, in a sense, limited himself to work through the church, the body of Christ, yielded to him. The more you yield, the more you'll see use. The more you don't, the more you won't. Then it says holy and acceptable. You know, we don't like the word holy. I found that out. I found that when you mention holiness in some circles, we get tight. 
Because we've heard it preached so long as this stiff, rigid kind of a idea. It's not. The word holiness means set apart. It means consecrated. I have at home a holy pitcher. I only put juice in it. It's set apart, not for milk, not for water, not for iced tea, just for juice. That's the strict meaning of the word holy. It's set apart for a single use. It's holy. It's a holy picture. There were holy vessels in the tabernacle, consecrated, dedicated, only to be used in the tabernacle, vessels for incense, vessels for oil, vessels for the catching of blood. They couldn't take these vessels home and use them for their kids to play with. They were holy, consecrated. We're to be holy, set apart to do God's will. Rather than seeing holiness as some rigid, hard ideology, look at it in terms of relationship. What did God say in the Old Testament? Be holy for I am holy. I'm dad. You're my child. Imitate me. Be like me. So I see the definition of holiness is where the child of God wants to be like his father or her father. It's relational rather than being strict. A child who wants to be like his father. So, salvation is more than fire insurance. It's more than great, just, I just don't want to go to hell, just make sure I get to heaven. No, it's where we present ourselves to God to be used by God. It's proactive. We walk in the Spirit, right? We walk. It's, it's not passivity. I'm just going to yield, man, let go and let God. God, you got my phone number. I live over here. I'm not going to do anything, God, until you wake me out of bed, shake me, and irresistibly move me to do your will. It's not that at all. It's a proactive thing of, Lord, here's my body. Take it. Use it. My hands today, my mouth, my feet. I want to use them to glorify you. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to conduct my life in the realm of the Spirit. That's what Paul said to do. He didn't say, veg ye in the Spirit. Pull up a lounge chair and get some sun in the Spirit. We walk. It's an active yielding to the Lord. Why? Because he says it's, notice, our reasonable service. Now, I know if you have an NIV, it says your spiritual act of worship, right? It could be rendered either way. Let me just give you the original sense. The word reasonable is the Greek word logikos. We get the word logic from it. Logical, rational. And it seems like Paul is saying this. Okay, we've spent 11 chapters in some of these deep theological issues of the wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God. In view of all of these things that I've told you, the great mercies of God, His unsearchable riches, His great mercy and grace, it only makes sense the most logical thing you could do is cooperate with that plan and yield yourself to God. Be a part of it. It's logical service. Now, some do render it in their translations, your spiritual act of worship. I feel that's a little weak, but it could be translated that. And if it does mean that, then it also has a beautiful rendition. Because true worship then, true worship is not having the right candles or the right music or the right, right robes, but having the right heart and the right obedience. True worship is where my body is yielded to do the will of God. It's obedience. 
True worship is obedience. I present my body to God. Well, that's the presentation of our body, and we have six minutes to look at verse 2. The next thing to knowing the will of God is the transformations of our mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice it's negative and positive. Don't do this, but do this. Don't be conformed to this world, but do be transformed. I think the best translation of this verse happens to be the J.B. Phillips translation. Listen to it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Isn't that great? Don't be conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Don't follow as your pattern the pattern the world follows. Now, by the way, putting things in the negative and the positive is a pattern of God through the Bible. Leviticus 18, God says to the children of Israel, Whatever you do, don't be like the Egyptians. You just came from Egypt. Don't do what they did. You're going to the land of Canaan. Don't do what they're going to do. Don't follow what they do. Then Jesus said that at the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about giving and fasting and praying. And he talks about that heathen, pagans, can fast and pray and do these things. And he says in chapter 6 of Matthew, Therefore, do not be like them. Like who? Like the world. Don't let the world conform you. Don't be like the world. Now this brings up a question, and we'll probably have to close with this. What does he mean by the world? You know, John says, do not love the world, right? First John. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in this world. And so we ask the question, well, what does he mean by world? The Bible uses the term world three different ways. Number one, the physical world. Acts 17, God made the world and everything that is in it. When the Bible says you're not to love the world, does it mean you're not to love the physical world? Does it mean you're to hate trees? I hate the clouds, man. I don't love the world. I hate it. No, not at all. In fact, if anything Christianity does is give us a whole new appreciation for the environment because it's made by God and it speaks of his creative genius and glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 8. So he doesn't mean that. Second, the Bible speaks about the world in terms of the world of humanity, people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, when John says, don't love the world, does he mean don't love people? Of course not. That would contradict what God loves. God loves the world. We ought to love what God loves. There's a third sense in which the word world is used in the Bible, and this is how it's used here. It's the Greek word cosmos. We get the word cosmopolitan from it, cosmetic from it. It literally means a, an ordered system, an ordered system that is hostile to God. Um, example, we talk about the world of sports. Do we mean a world that revolves and actually has a planetary system and start? No. Some think it is. <laughs> but the world of sports is a term that denotes people, activities, and interests that are involved in sports. And so the world, this ordered system, 
is people, activities, and interests that are hostile to God. The devil's called the God of this world, this cosmos, this system that's opposed to him. Has entities, beings, demons that are opposed to God. And the, the, the world of people cooperate, unless they're Christians, with this evil intention system headed up by Satan. So, don't be conformed to that, to the God of this world, to Satan, this ordered system that's hostile to God. But be transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind. Oh, not only does your body matter to God, but your mind matters to God. And yet I hear some Christians badmouth both. Body doesn't matter. Your mind doesn't matter. Well, God says it does matter. God wants your body and he wants to change your mind. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm, I'm sort of tired of getting the impression that some people give off that when you come to Christ, you check your brains at the door. You don't think critically anymore. Well, then you couldn't have discernment. The Bible commands us to discern and to judge righteous judgments and to compare and to think. We're to love God with our minds. So, the presentation of our bodies to God, the transformation of our mind to God, will bring us to that third, the apprehension of God's will. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we'll talk more specifically about that next time since we're out of time.